the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. WLCC Brandon. Faith Talk Tampa. Online at letstalkfaith.com. Or listen on TuneIn and Odyssey. The following is sponsored by Verse by Verse Ministries and is pre recorded. Now, in light of these past rejections by the people of Nazareth and those of his own family, I think a reasonable question for us to ask is, why in the world would Jesus come back to his hometown? When they had already rejected him, they tried to throw him off a cliff, and what they meant by that is we wanted to kill him. They wanted him to, to fall and, and die. So why would Jesus come back into that kind of environment? Jesus often did the unexpected. The disciples were sometimes confused and frustrated because Jesus didn't act like the kind of Messiah they were expecting. They really didn't grasp his plan until after the resurrection. Welcome to Verse by Verse. Today, Pastor Steve Kreloff is in the second of his three-part teaching on the rejection of Jesus at Nazareth from Matthew 13. Verse by Verse is an outreach ministry of Lakeside Community Chapel of Clearwater, Florida. We're happy to have you along today. At the end of the class, I'll tell you how you can listen again to this message and many others. Our free book offer is still open to anyone who contributes any amount to the ministry. Now with today's class, here is Pastor Steve. One of the hardest things for a Christian to do is to witness to members of his own family. Maybe you've experienced that difficulty. Even if you've had plenty of opportunities in sharing the gospel with others, sharing your faith with family members can still be very hard and very challenging. And the reason for this is that families have a hard time seeing one of their, their own as a credible witness for Christ. They tend to think of you as someone who they knew growing up. So how can you possibly know more than they do about important religious and spiritual matters? And even if they don't articulate this, their attitude is often, who are you to tell me about my need for Jesus Christ. You're just a member of this family. Nobody's special. Certainly, you're no expert on religious issues. Who do you think you are teaching me? The Bible. Well, I remember you as a little kid who knew next to nothing, and now you think you're qualified to teach me? Now, if you've ever experienced something like that with members of your own family, then you know you should be encouraged at least to know that you're not alone because many, many believers in Christ have gone through the same thing. But it should really encourage you to know that not only has this been the experience of plenty of other Christians, but even the Lord Jesus Christ himself was, wasn't taken seriously by his family and the people that he grew up with in his hometown. And we know this was the case because in the Gospel of Matthew, the end of chapter 13, our Gospel writer Matthew tells us about the time that Jesus came back to his hometown of Nazareth and the people that he grew up with, and they rejected him. So let's open our Bibles to Matthew chapter 13. We have arrived at the last section of this chapter that we've been studying for some time. And here's how the chapter closes, starting with verse 53. When Jesus had finished these parables, 
he departed from there. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas? And his sisters, are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. But Jesus said to them, a prophet is not without honor except in his hometown and in his own household. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. Now, after finishing the section on Christ's parables about the kingdom of heaven, chapter 13 concludes with this very interesting story about Jesus returning to his hometown of Nazareth, the place where he grew up. And Matthew tells us that after he went in the synagogue, he taught the people, he was just flat out rejected by them. Now, this wasn't the first time that Jesus had been rejected by the residents of Nazareth. At the very beginning of his ministry, shortly after his baptism and his temptation, he came back to Nazareth and he actually gave them his very first sermon. So let me have you turn there. If you'll keep your place in Matthew 13, if you look at Luke chapter 4, this is not a parallel passage. It's similar because the reaction was similar, but it is not the same passage. This is uh, right at the beginning of his ministry. The Matthew 13 passage is about a year into the Lord's ministry. And we're not going to cover everything, but I want to give you a taste of the people's reaction. It says, starting in verse 16, And he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, and as was his custom, he entered the synagogue on the Sabbath and stood up to read. The book of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him, and he opened the book and found the place where it was written. And so he read from the book of Isaiah, and then Jesus spoke a little bit about things that the people of Nazareth didn't want to hear. Starting in verse 24, he said, Truly I say to you, no prophet is welcome in his hometown, but I say to you in truth, there were many widows in Israel in the days of Elijah when the sky was shut up for three years and six months when a great famine came over all the land, and yet Elijah was sent to none of them, but only to Zarephath in the land of Sidon, to a woman who is a widow. Now, what is the Lord saying? He's saying that, that in the days of Elijah, instead of ministering to the Jewish people, Elijah was sent by God to minister to a Gentile, a woman in the, in the northern part. Uh, in fact, not in Israel. Sidon is uh, what we would call modern Lebanon today. And he ministered to her, but not to the Jewish people. Now, the people of Nazareth were incensed at hearing this. He goes on. He says in verse 27, and there were many lepers in Israel in the time of Elisha, the prophet, and none of them was cleansed, only Naaman, the Syrian. Now, what he's saying is, okay, another time in the history of Israel, just a little bit later in Elisha's time, Elisha ministered to a Syrian, not to Jewish people. He's, just, he's simply saying that God did not minister to the Jewish people, but he cares for the Gentiles and the people were incensed at this. Notice verse 28, and all the people in the synagogue were filled with rage as they heard these things. They got up and drove him out of the city, led him to the brow of the hill on which their city had been built in order to throw him down the cliff. But passing through their midst, he went his way. How dare he say that God loves Gentiles? Anyway, that was his first sermon. Imagine gentlemen who have been in ministry, imagine if that was the reaction of the congregation to your first sermon. 
But it wasn't only the residents of Nazareth who rejected Jesus. In Mark chapter 3, we're told that even his own family thought he was out of his mind. There was a time that he didn't even take food as he ministered all day in a certain home, and they thought he had lost his mind. They wanted him to eat a little bit, rest a little bit, but he's ministering so much. And in John chapter 7, verse 5, we're told that, that at that point in his ministry, even his own brothers did not believe in him. Later they came to believe in him, but not at that point, meaning they did not believe that he was the Messiah. Now, in light of these past rejections by the people of Nazareth and those of his own family, I think a reasonable question for us to ask is, why in the world would Jesus come back to his hometown? When they had already rejected him, they tried to throw him off a cliff, and what they meant by that is we wanted to kill him. They wanted him to, to fall and, and die. So why would Jesus come back into that kind of environment? Well, I think there are a couple of reasons why the Lord did this, even though his last visit there had resulted in their rage and, and him being chased out of town. First of all, I think it was pure grace on his part. Pure mercy, even though they had already expressed rage at him and even tried to throw him off a cliff, he returned to give them another opportunity to hear the truth, to be exposed to him, to believe in him as their Messiah and King. And and he did that because he loved them. He loved them and uh, simply pure grace. It is no different than all the opportunities the Lord has given us to accept him, even though we have rejected and rejected and rejected and spurned his love, he still has reached out to us. It's no different than that. The people of Nazareth didn't deserve this visit, just as we do not deserve him to visit our hearts and to reveal himself to us. And they didn't deserve this exposure to him. He gave it to them anyway, pure grace. Secondly, I think the reason that Matthew included this incident of rejection in his gospel account and the reason that Jesus returned there is because the Lord wanted his disciples to see a demonstration of unbelief in action. This was part of their discipleship. It was for their sake. As you'll recall, Jesus had told his followers that they could expect most people to reject him. That's the point of the parable of the sower. The sower went out, had some seed, threw seed around. It fell on mostly hearts that were hardened and not interested in the gospel. Some people did and will receive him. But the the major point of the parable is that most people, Jesus said, are going to hear the word of the kingdom and not be interested in the message. And some, he said, would be so uninterested in it that they wouldn't even give it a passing consideration. It would never cross their minds as to whether he's true or not. Their hearts would be hard, like packed down soil, totally unresponsive to the truth. And one one of the best examples and illustrations of people with hearts that were so hard to the message that he was king and Messiah were the residents of Nazareth. And so it would appear that one of the main reasons Jesus returned to Nazareth now a year later with some disciples was to show his men that this is the kind of reaction that they could expect from many hard-hearted people. In other words, it was for the sake of those he was discipling that he went back. Yes, it was grace on his part, but it was also for the sake of the men he was ministering to. So they could see firsthand the kind of reaction that they could expect to receive as they witnessed for him. See, keep in mind the big picture. With this story about Christ's rejection at Nazareth, Matthew is bringing to a close a major section of his gospel account. As you'll recall, in 
Matthew chapter 11, starting there, the emphasis in that gospel has been on the rejection of Jesus as king. Matthew, remember, is building his whole gospel account around the kingship and messiahship of Christ. And in chapter 11 and and following until now, he has been emphasizing by showing us several examples that people were reacting negatively to Christ. They were hostile. Some were hostile. Some were opposing him. They were rejecting him. He started by telling us about a general indictment against the Jewish people who accused Jesus of being gluttonous, a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors, and sinners. Then he told us about the negative response of three cities in Galilee, the cities who had seen most of Christ's miracles, and Jesus denounced them. They weren't angry with him. They were just apathetic and indifferent. That's that's the cities of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and, and Capernaum. And he pronounced a woe upon them. And I've got to tell you, today, these are nothing cities. These are nothing cities. If you've ever been to Israel, Chorazin is in ruins. Capernaum is just a tourist place. Um, there there may be some Roman Catholic uh, monks and priests who, who live there to keep up the place, but nobody else. It's just you pay to get in there. That's all. And uh, I was in Bethsaida, and it is deserted. Jesus pronounced a woe on those cities. They were just indifferent and unrepentant. Next, Matthew revealed that the religious leaders of Israel opposed Christ with anger and hostility, and they accused him of being a Sabbath breaker, a lawbreaker. And then they went on to say, you're even an ambassador of Satan. The reason you do these miracles is because Satan is empowering you, not God. And so it was in light of these many rejections, keep in mind that Matthew tells us Jesus started giving his disciples parables, parables about the mysteries of the kingdom. And the reason he did this is because he was no longer essentially no longer going to speak to unbelievers directly. The nation had made their decision. The Jewish leaders had said, no, you are, you are demonic. And Jesus said, once that happened, uh, you're not going to get clear, plain teaching. And that's why if you look at chapter 13, verse 10, and verses around there, Jesus gives the reason for why he's decided to speak to the folks now in parables. The disciples came and said to him, why do you speak to them in parables? And Jesus answered to you, meaning you disciples, my followers, my believers, it's been granted to you to know the mysteries of the kingdom of heaven, but to them it has not been granted. So he said that they're not going to understand. And that's why in verse 13, he said, therefore, I speak to them, meaning the crowds of unbelievers in parables, because while seeing, they do not see, while hearing, they do not hear, nor do they understand. So what is he saying? It's a divine judgment upon the nation. That's why I speak in parables to them. They've rejected me. I've spoken to them plainly. I've spoken to them clearly, and they rejected my clear, plain teaching. So now all they're going to get from me, stories that sound like confusing riddles. That's all they're going to get from me. They have made their ultimate decision. And so after finishing these parables, Matthew now closes out this section on the people's negative reaction to Christ by showing us that the rejection of Jesus was so deep, that even the people of his own hometown refused to believe in him. And from this point on, and next, next time we look at the gospel of Matthew, you'll see there is a transition passage in which we read about John the Baptist being beheaded by Herod. But essentially, from this point on, in the, the gospels, most of Christ's ministry is behind the scenes preparing and training his disciples as the king essentially withdraws 
not all the time, but most of his ministry will now be devoted to preparing and training his disciples. And that's why we read in Mark chapter 6, verse 7, which is a parallel passage, that immediately following his time of rejection in Nazareth, Jesus sent his disciples out on their first missionary journey as apostles training them. Now, you may think, but didn't we study that months and months ago? Yes, we did. We studied that in Matthew chapter 10, but keep in mind, Matthew most of the time doesn't present his material in a sequential manner. That is to say, he doesn't present it chronologically as it happened. He presents it more topically, but chronologically where it fits in is right here. After Christ was rejected by the people of Nazareth, then he sent his disciples out. Why? Because that was part of their training. And it's part of our training, too, because the primary lesson here that Jesus wants all of his followers to understand from his experience in Nazareth is how unbelief works, how it thinks. See, the way the people of Nazareth reacted to Christ does give us some helpful insight into the wickedness behind hardened unbelief. In other words, the residents of Nazareth just demonstrate the kind of ridiculous thinking that unbelief embraces. It's very helpful for us to to learn about this because when people reject the gospel, we need to understand what is behind their unbelief. Otherwise, we might be puzzled as to why so many people reject Christ. Is there something wrong with him? Maybe something I've missed? Maybe they see something about Christ that I, I haven't seen before. Is there something wrong with me for believing in him? Have I been naive? Have I not looked at the facts? Or, or is there something wrong the way I've witnessed to others about him? Maybe I've left out an important aspect of the gospel and they're not getting it. Why, why are they being so harsh in their reaction? Maybe it's me. Maybe it's Christ. Maybe it's the gospel. Well, as we go through these verses, you're going to see it's not you. It's not Christ. It's not the gospel. The problem lies with the way that hardened unbelief does everything it can to twist and reject the truth, and ignore the facts about Jesus. So in the passage before us, Matthew tells us about the rejection by the residents of Nazareth of Christ for the purpose of exposing the way hardened unbelief acts. And based on the reaction of these Nazarenes to Jesus, we see three characteristics of hardened unbelief. That's what we're going to focus on this morning. Three characteristics of hardened unbelief. And uh, this is true of all who have a hardened heart towards Christ. Number one, the first characteristic of hardened unbelief is that it rejects the obvious evidence for Christ being king. It rejects the obvious evidence. Starting in verse 53 and 54, we read this. When Jesus had finished these parables, he departed from there. He came to his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Now, Matthew starts off by telling us that after Jesus gave the last of his seven parables to his disciples, he left Capernaum. But what Matthew doesn't tell us, because as I told you, his gospel account is more topical than sequential, is that after leaving Capernaum, Jesus did a number of significant things before he ever came to Nazareth. We know this because the gospel of Mark which is in a um, chronological fashion, tells us that between the time Jesus left Capernaum and the time he arrived in Nazareth, he calmed the sea 
the storm on the Sea of Galilee. That's where this fits in. He actually cast out demons from the two men on the other side of Galilee, the Gentile side, sent them into a herd of swine who then plunged themselves into the Sea of Galilee and died. And he performed several noteworthy miracles of healings in the Galilee area. And it was after doing all those things that Jesus then came to Nazareth. Now, notice that Matthew doesn't even mention the town by name. He simply refers to it as his hometown because this was the village that Jesus grew up in. This was his hometown. As you'll recall, Christ was born where? The city of Bethlehem to the south. Bethlehem is uh, almost like a suburb of Jerusalem. He was born in Bethlehem in fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy because Micah said that's where he would be born. But then his family moved to Nazareth north in the Galilee area when he was an infant. Now, in the earlier chapters of Matthew's gospel, we learned that Joseph and Mary had fled from, they took, they took the infant Jesus and they fled south into Egypt in order to escape from Herod, who wanted to kill the Christ child. But after Herod's death, they returned from Egypt. However, they were warned by God, do not return to the Bethlehem, Jerusalem, Judea area, but go north to a place called Nazareth, where they had actually been from. And so Matthew 2.23 says that they came and lived in a city called Nazareth. Now, Nazareth was a small, rather insignificant town in Galilee. In fact, it's still rather insignificant, except Jesus lived there. And it's in the northern region of Israel. The Lord lived most of his life in that town. But when he began his ministry at about age 30, he moved out of Nazareth, and he went a little bit north, about 20 miles northeast, to the town of Capernaum, which is located directly on the Sea of Galilee. If you've never been to Israel, let me explain. Galilee is a region in the north, but there is a sea in the midst of it, actually a lake, called the Sea of Galilee. Some towns are on that lake, but uh, and Capernaum was one of those towns. It's, it's a village right on that lake. Nazareth was in Galilee. In fact, it still is there. There are two towns, by the way, known as Nazareth today. One is populated by Jewish people. One is populated by Arab people. The town that Jesus was from would be the Arab-populated town of Nazareth, but it's not, even though it's in Galilee, it is not on the water. And so after having been involved in ministry for about a year in and around the area of Capernaum, Matthew tells us that Jesus has now returned to Nazareth where he grew up. And as we've already noted, at the very beginning of his ministry, he went to Nazareth, they tried to murder him. But now it's about a year later, and he's returned as a well-known rabbi with a group of disciples following and learning from him. And the gospel writer, Mark, is very careful to point this out in Mark 6, 1. He says, and he came into his hometown and his disciples followed him. And because Jesus was a recognized rabbi now, which means he was a teacher, it was very natural for him to be allowed to teach the people in their synagogue when they assembled on Saturdays. And by the way, they didn't only assemble on Saturdays, could have been other days as well. And that's exactly what Matthew tells us took place. Notice what the verse says. He began teaching them in their synagogue. Now, what Jesus specifically taught the people that day, we aren't told. However, we are told of the reaction of the people to Jesus and his teaching. Notice Matthew says they were astonished. Now, what does that mean? 
They were astonished. Well, the word that's used here means essentially they were amazed. You could even say and translate it, they were stunned. How about this word, which I think would be a synonym for it? They were even flabbergasted. That probably captures the thought. They were flabbergasted, stunned. And why were they so flabbergasted? Why were they stunned? Well, they actually tell us why in verse 54. Notice what they said. Where did this man, this fellow, get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? See, as the people of Nazareth sat that day in the synagogue, listening to the most profound wisdom that they had ever heard, and knowing what others had said about Jesus, and maybe some of them have observed it, that he did miracles all around Galilee, they were stunned and they were amazed. In our next study, we will see the cause of hardened unbelief. Be sure to be here. You can listen to this study and many more by going to our website, versebyverseradio.org. While there, you can take advantage of our offer of the book, Timeless Truths from a Faithful Shepherd, that we will send to you for an offering of any size to Verse by Verse Ministries during this series of studies. Just click on the Support Us tab and scroll down to the Donate button. We're sure this valuable resource will be a real blessing to you. You can call us at 727-239-0306 for information about the book and how to get your copy. Don't put it off any longer. That phone number again is 727-239-0306. I'm your announcer, Jim. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.